0: RPC Radio. Radio. Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered. Welcome to the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode.
1: Seeing the lutein bell here, knowing the significance of how Uh, Lloyd's, uh, again, proved its worth by settling such a significant claim, not letting anything go. And and that's what insurance is all about. It symbolizes that.
0: My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner in the law firm RPC. And in each episode, I am joined by a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week, I'm with Paul Miller and Joe Powell. And in an insurance-covered first, we are outside in sunny London because we're going on a walking tour around the city of London to look at some historically important insurance buildings. Paul is a friend of the podcast, having been on twice before, once to discuss recruitment in the insurance industry and the second time to discuss the Titanic. He will be known to any insurance person on LinkedIn because he regularly posts fascinating insurance stories from history. Furthermore, since our last podcast together, Paul has become a trustee of the Insurance Museum. Joe Powell is also a friend of the podcast. He is a title insurance underwriter based in Alabama, and he has been a hugely encouraging supporter of the podcast from its earliest days. Joe is in London on a family holiday and has taken time out to come on an insurance-based walking tour of London with Paul and me. And that is what we're going to discuss today. So, Paul
1: and Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. It's nice to meet you, Joe, too. Absolutely. It's wonderful to meet you guys in person. (laughs) (laughs) Y'all.
0: A particularly warm welcome to you, Joe. Um, I hope that you've been enjoying your trip to the UK. Is this the first time you've been here And, and what's been the highlight so far?
1: I came to London when I was a boy, aged 13, with a school group from Alabama. And we stayed here three or four days and stayed at the old Kensington Close Hotel. I even remembered it. And I remember the name of our tour guide, Gordon Marsh. But uh, I had my picture made at the Clarence House with one of the Royal Guards. And so I tried to have that recreated, but now there's a gate and you can't get close. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) But everything's been wonderful, really lovely, great trip. Right, let's get going. And uh, just by way of background, we're
0: standing in the very heart of London now in an area known as the City with a capital C. Um, Obviously, the city is just a tiny part of the much larger metropolis of Greater London. But this is the place that was originally settled by the Romans around 43 AD and was named Londinium. Uh, The Romans built a wall around the settlement and for over a thousand years, this defined the size of the city. Uh, Even now, the city is known as the Square Mile, which is roughly uh, roughly the area of land enclosed by the old walls to the west, north and east, and by the River Thames to the south. Uh, The city stretches from the Tower of London in the east to just beyond St Paul's Cathedral in the west. Uh, and in medieval times the old London Wall was punctured in various places by gates, the, num- the names of which have survived to this day in our road names and underground stations such as Allgate, Moorgate, Triplegate, Newgate, Aldersgate and Ludgate. But the one that we're interested in is Bishopsgate. Uh, if you entered the city on the route from Cambridge you would have passed through Bishopsgate, and if you then continue down that road towards the river Thames Uh, you would soon be on the road that we now call Gracechurch Street. And we're currently standing just off Gracechurch Street in a narrow roadway known as Lombard Street. Uh, It's only about 260 metres long and is a classic city road in that it's narrow, slightly oppressive, with seven or eight storey buildings on on both sides, meaning that it's dark and claustrophobic. Uh, Perhaps because of that, whenever I walk down it, I get a sense that I'm stepping back in time. Um, it tends to have less traffic than the nearby roads and it's a little quieter. So, so Paul, that was an exceptionally long introduction, but why have
2: we started our journey here? Well firstly that was very interesting, thank you. So, Well most of Italy was once part of the Lombard Kingdom. Around the year 1320 Lombard Street became a centre for people from the region who worked as financiers. Also at that time, merchants would insure their cargo in transit on sea or on land, and this was introduced into England by the Lombards who'd set up their businesses here. Therefore, it's a pretty safe bet to say that the first marine insurance in the UK would have been traded in this area. And hence the name Lombard Street. Lombard Street, exactly. Um, OK, well, we often think, (laughs) we often think, uh, well, us
0: Brits often think that the history of insurance um, started with, with Lloyds. Um, and, but modern premium-based insurance uh, was, as you say, invented in the city-states of Northern Italy um, and was then exported kind of around Europe. So uh, as I understand it, there were Lombard streets in Dublin and Portsmouth and Bristol and the uh, Rue de Lombard, uh, if that's pronounced even vaguely right, uh, in Paris. Um, presumably, all for the same reason, the, these Lombard traders just ended up going all over Europe. Um, anyway, tell us a little bit more about, about this particular Lombard street.
2: Well, one, one of my favourite things about it, and it's, it's clearly full of history, but one of my favourite things is that along the street, if you look up, you can see signs hanging from outside of some of the buildings. And there's a very interesting story about these. So they were originally put up in the early 1700s, when fewer people were able to read. So in 1718, one came crashing down. It took with it the front of a house and killed four people. So after that, the signs were either taken down or attached to the front of houses, which is where the shopfront signage we see all over the world today originates. And also, as part of Edward VII's coronation celebrations in 1902, London streets were decorated with lights, but a trader on Lombard Street thought they could bring a more historic feeling to the celebrations, and so some of these signs returned.
1: Paul, you're verifying something that one of the tour guides told us the other day about how there were these signs hanging over the pubs uh, with sticks and grapes, and so everybody knew that's where they could go get a drink, you know? Because they didn't say, you know, alcoholic beverages available here. Oh, right. <laughs> they had to have the sign, yeah. That's interesting.
2: it's um, also in, in Victorian London, because it's very poor in, in around, particularly around this, well not so much in the city, but in the east, of, east end of London, people used to go and get hammered on gin. Mm-hmm. You know? And so because they, a lot of them were so drunk, they used to put a washing line out the back of the pubs. So instead of having to go home or pay rent to stay somewhere for the night, they'd lean over and sleep on the rope like that. And that's where the word hangover comes from.
1: Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Now that is interesting because... We had another uh, uh, interpretation of the word hangover. And so when all the public went to see the hangings and the public executions, Mm. so that was their entertainment. And so they would all go and get hammered afterwards at the pub. And so once the hanging was over, and they sobered up. That was another very good like another that. origination for hangover. Did you
0: ever imagine yourself saying the word hammered? Oh, no.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we have about a
2: million words for being drunk over
1: Yeah, there.
2: right, right. <laughs> and
0: rain. But getting drunk in rain. That's what that's what Brits do best.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, we've now moved a few meters uh, along Lombard Street away from Gracechurch Church Street, so kind of westwards. Uh, and Joe, what are
1: we looking at? This is the site of Lloyd's Coffee House. It's now a Sainsbury's store. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm sorry about that. It, 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 one of the most important
0: buildings in London, and uh, you would have hoped that it was nothing against Sainsbury's. Kind <laughs> of thing. You know, wonderful. In fact, we've all just bought a drink there. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's yeah a Sainsbury's store with the blue plaque on the side, marking the location of Edwards Lloyd's Coffee House. So. Um, uh, before we talk about the origins of Lloyds in a little bit more detail, and, and I hand back to Paul, um, we must first talk about the, the Great Fire of London uh, in 1666. And at the time, kind of London, the city uh, as a whole, had grown to about... Well, actually, no, London, you know, the, the wider city, had grown to around 300,000 to 400,000 people, um, 80,000 of whom lived within the walls of the city. And, you know, it's a medieval city, all the houses are wooden, narrow, congested streets, um, yeah, actually more congested and more narrower than Lombard Street is now. Um, and the fire started on, on 2nd of September 1666 on, on Pudding Lane, um, just two minutes walk from here, um, and it burned for five days so and obliterated three quarters of the city, um, plus a sizeable area even beyond the city walls. Um, so, so the whole of this area where we now stand was completely destroyed, absolutely razed to the ground. So, Paul,
2: why why
0: is any of this relevant uh, to our story of insurance?
2: Well, as, as you'll know, the, the Great Fire pretty much destroyed the city of London. So around, or over, in fact, thirteen thousand homes were destroyed, which is roughly around fifty percent of the city. I read online that the ABI calculated in two thousand and sixteen that the equivalent cost today would be around thirty-seven billion pounds. So that's about $70 billion to you, Joe. That's real money. Exactly. Although actually the way the pound is falling at the moment, it might be worth more. Exactly. It's not far (laughs) off my electricity bill this month, actually. (laughs) So from, from the Great Fire came the world's first property insurance policies to answer your question. So in 1666, the contracts of tenants made them liable for repairs to their houses, not the landlords that own the property. They were also told they had to pay rent while the houses were being rebuilt. So the businessmen in the city at the time began thinking of ways to improve fire safety and also of better ways for repairs to be paid. So in 1680 the first insurance company, the Fire Office, was set up by economist Nicholas Barbon. Other insurance companies were soon set up as well and by 1690 one in ten houses in London was insured. By the turn of the 18th century, insurance companies had realised it would probably be cheaper to put the fires out than to pay for rebuilds. And therefore, they employed their own fire brigades. So the insurers created firemark plates in order to identify which houses were insured by each company when the fire brigade arrived. We can still see some of them today, actually, around the city.
0: Yeah, no, I, we saw one a little bit earlier. So uh, uh, I can't remember the name of the street. Is it Great William Street? Is it? Yes, that's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, just on Great William Street. Actually, there, there are three up there Christ. where there's a, there's a blue plaque and then three fire marks above it. So, um, so, so Nicholas Barbon, um, he's kind of now the, the patron saint of uh, insurance, but he wasn't really a saint, was he? I think it's fair to say <laughs> he, he was. He was a classic, uh, you know out to get as much money as he could, property speculator.
2: Exactly. I think Capitalist was his middle name.
0: (laughs) Um, So after the fire, um, it was the newly built coffee houses that formed the centres of commerce and trade um, in the city. So tell us a little bit about that and about the origins of Lloyd's itself.
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right. So up until the mid-17th century, there were very few London merchants that had their own offices or counting houses. So for the majority, they carried out their business meetings in pubs The benefit of that was that the traders would would know where to find one another. So as you can likely imagine, alcohol and business were not the best combination. And so when coffee did arrive to the UK in 1650, the coffee houses offered a, a perhaps more sober alternative. So by 1663, there were over 80 coffee houses in London. There was White's at St. James's that was used by politicians. There was Buttons in Bow Street used by writers. And as you'll know, Lloyd's Coffee House, which became the insurance hub of the city.
0: Absolutely, and, and another one of the famous coffee houses, uh, Jonathan's, which was uh, th- sort of the first stock exchange, um, is located just behind us in the alley called Change Alley. And there's another blue plaque, a blue, a blue plaque there, kind of marking that spot. Um, but tell us a little bit more about Lloyd's.
2: Well, Lloyd's was, was founded, as most people know, by Edward Lloyd. He opened his own coffee house close to the, the River Thames and began attracting people involved in shipping. It became the favoured meeting place over years for ships' captains, the merchants, or owners who transacted marine insurance there. Now, it grew these premises and moved here in 1691. So, if you can try and imagine inside this building as it was at Lloyd's Coffee House, there's a large room with a sanded floor, a bar on the left. There were tables and chairs with benches. They had waiters that served coffee, tea, and strangely, sherbet. And they provided patrons also with the, the latest shipping intelligence. I think. Perhaps my favourite story at this time is that Lloyd's Coffee House would host what were known at the time as candle auctions with lots involving ships and shipping. So how they would work is that a candle would be placed on a table, a pin would be placed around two thirds up on it, it would be lit and the auction would begin. When the pin fell, the auction was over, the room would fall, well, deathly quiet really whilst these were taking place and it was where the phrase to hear a pin drop originates. Uh, As we already know. Lombard Street was a vibrant area of commerce, so along with the banks situated here, the post office was also in Lombard Street on the corner. So Edward Lloyd came to an agreement whereby his patrons could be sent posts to the coffee house which would be collected at the post office for them. This clearly made their lives much easier and so that, combined with the intelligence he provided, contributed to the rapid growth of the market around that time.
1: Brilliant. One thing I'll interject uh, from our, one of our uh, commercial tours we took the other day, um, they started talking about the Great London Fire and how it all started and that this baker did what he did and, right. it, and it started spreading. And so it was just pre-recorded and the tour guide said, well, we hope he had good insurance. Oh. And I was thinking to myself, he didn't have any. Exactly. That's how it all yeah. started. Exactly. That was the beginning exactly. of insurance. Yeah. yeah, they need to I mean, update their there. material. <laughs>
0: <Exactly>. <laughs> Actually, Paul, I was gonna have a little argument with you because I'll doing a little bit of reading and the, my understanding is that the, the very, very first fire insurance company was in Hamburg. Oh really? The, the, the Hamburg uh, Feuerkasse, or something oh, like that. There you go. But I mean, almost exactly the same time, only, only a year or so in it. But that's just for any of our German listeners, oh, just yeah. in case. I don't want them to get upset. <laughs> <laughs> right, so we're, we're now in a place called Pope's Head Alley. Um, so we've walked a, walked a few yards further on, a little bit westward towards Bank. Uh, and we've turned northwards into a very modern alleyway opposite uh, opposite a church. So uh, before we talk about the alleyway, um, Paul, do you want to just mention a little bit about the church that we're standing
2: opposite? Yeah, sure. So this is St Mary of Warnoff. It's at the um, bottom of Lombard Street. Um, but Edward Lloyd frequented the church regularly with his family. There, there are quite a number of records of him and his daughter Handy coming here to speak and to present to the um, parishioners of the church. But, yeah, he was very active in that one.
0: Brilliant. Anyway, let's turn back to, to, to Pope's Head Alley. And... Joe, I'm, I'm a, we've already brought you to the Sainsbury's, yes. and now we've brought you to a modern alleyway, which I have to say, in terms of aesthetics, isn't great. It's not the most beautiful place in London. But it's full
1: of beautiful history. That's why we're here. Exactly.
0: We have to close our eyes and use our imaginations whilst we're here. So, so Paul, tell us, tell us what our imagination should be
2: imagining. Okay, so let's go back to the year 1720, which is when the Bubble Act was formed. So the Act banned the formation of any joint stock companies unless approved by Royal Charter. It was effectively an attempt to shore up the share price of the South Sea Company, but had the opposite effect and caused its collapse. The Royal Exchange Assurance and London Assurance were left untouched by the Bubble Act and remained as the only insurance companies of the time. What the Act didn't do, however, was prevent individuals from trading, and so Lloyd's Coffee House flourished. And that is
0: such an important point, because it it explains why Lloyd's is as it is now, which is a a, a marketplace rather than a company, because most people would expect it to be a company, but but it's not. Mm -hmm. It's it's effectively all these individual underwriters, as it so happens now, combined into syndicates and whatever, Um, but but for a hundred years, until the repeal of the Bubble Act, so I think 104 years if we're going to be precise, The the marine underwriters who worked out of Lloyd's Coffee House, they only had two competitors. um, The Royal Exchange Assurance Corporation, that you've mentioned, and and, and the London Assurance Corporation. But neither of them, as I understand it, were particularly interested in marine insurance. They were both given licenses to, uh, or charters, to to underwrite fire insurance. And that's where the money was, because everyone everyone was getting fire insurance for their properties. So that they left marine insurance to the underwriters at Lloyds, and for a century or more, Lloyds had a virtual monopoly on marine insurance, and, and that is why Lloyds created the structures that it did and why Lloyds is as it is now.
2: No, you're exactly right, Peter, and, and um, underwriters enjoyed high profits throughout that period because of the, the monopoly that you described. During the Seven Years' War in the early 1760s, their profits increased e- even further. But as that period came to an end, a lot of the marine premiums returned to a lower level, so that drove certain underwriters to more speculative like, <laughs> I was, lines I'll say. They underwrote other kinds of risks, so very strange things. They included death by gin drinking, or when the Prime Minister might die. So Lloyd's Coffee House soon became notorious as a gambling den, and this caused the breakaway group of professional underwriters to establish a new Lloyd's Coffee House on the March the 21st 1769, right here on Pope's Head Alley, at number five. So the the so-called old Lloyds closed soon after. Interestingly, lots of businesses would set up in the alleys around the city at this time. So the messengers who ran around with important documents would be able to avoid the crowds. And that's one of the reasons Lloyds moved here.
0: Were there any particularly interesting or well-known underwriters at the
2: time? Yeah, there were. So there was John Walter, who went on to form the Times newspaper, but I I think perhaps one of the more well-known ones is uh, there was an underwriter called Daniel Foe. And I mentioned the Seven Years' War. He over-speculated and lost all of his money. After he did that, he went off, decided insurance wasn't for him. It fulfilled his passion and dream of writing. and Went off and wrote Mole Flanders and another of uh, other books that you'll know of under the pen name Daniel Dufo.
1: Ah, brilliant, okay. So while we're here at Lloyd's Coffee House, this is how I first learned about the whole concept of underwriting insurance. Because as I understand it, the marine insurance would come in and maybe on a board, write down the name of a ship that was sailing and how much it was gonna cost to underwrite the cover. For that sailing, and so different people would come in and literally write their names underneath that and how much of the total risk they were willing to accept. Until finally, you had a hundred percent, I suppose. So that's where the term underwriting came. You're writing your name under the risk. Exactly. Exactly. And, and and the Latin of
0: underwriter is subscriptor, which is where you get the subscription market from. So it's yeah, it it. it it all makes sense when you sort of kind of, uh, when you know it. So yep, yeah, let's move on to the next location. right well we've, uh, we've now walked through Pope's Head Alley and uh, we've turned left a few meters up Cornhill, towards the, the busy interchange known as Bank. Um, so Joe, uh, that, that building uh, there in front of us is, is the Bank of England. Uh, that was established in 1694, ironically by a Scotsman. Um, But obviously uh, this particular building is is from much later that that the facade that you see uh, is is late 18th century Um, But the interior is is from the 1920s so that the the original interior was completely gutted and and, and replaced in the 1920s Um, But the reason why we're here is because of this building on the right, uh, which is the, the Royal Exchange So Paul Tell us a little bit about the Royal Exchange and why it's relevant to our story.
2: Yeah, sure. Well, after the move to Pope's Head Alley, Lloyd's had evolved, or uh, Lloyd's evolved into a more formal society and needed a larger space to operate. So, in 1774, the subscribers to Lloyd's occupied new premises here at the Royal Exchange. One of the first of the new additions into this building was the Loss Book, which was introduced in the year of opening. So that detailed losses at sea. It's still used today and can be seen in the current Lloyd's building by the Lutine Bell. All entries into Lost, but to this day, are made using a quill pen, and I've been reliably informed from the same farm in Kent. Um, they take the, the, the um, feather from the swan that they did hundreds of years ago. The exchange was destroyed by fire in 1838, and uh, I was also told that there's a large clock at the back of the underwriting room that would chime and play a tune on each hour, and apparently as the exchange burned, it played There's nae like a boot the hoose. <laughs>
0: Um, But, I mean, the the, the fire was, from a historical perspective, from a historian's perspective, uh, it was an absolute tragedy, wasn't it? Because it destroyed all of Lloyd's earliest records.
2: That's right. So the the exchange was rebuilt in 1844, and that's the one we're, we're looking at today, Joe. It was whilst here in 1871 that the first Lloyd's Act was passed in Parliament, and that gave Lloyd's a sound legal footing. Also around that time, it was, it was very unusual for a Lloyd syndicate to have more than maybe five or six backers, so that lack of underwriting capacity meant Lloyd's was losing many of the larger risks to rival insurance companies. There was a, a marine underwriter at the time, a chap called Frederick Martin, and he was credited for first identifying this issue and then creating the first large syndicate, which was initially made up of 12 capacity providers. By the 1880s, his syndicate had outgrown many of the major insurance companies outside of Lloyds. And and Paul, I mean, presumably that was the the period when Lloyds cemented its reputation globally. Yes, that's right, Peter, particularly, as Joe may
1: be able to verify, in America. And that's because, in part, due to the actions of the underwriter from Lloyds, Cuthbert Heath, who, after the San Francisco earthquake of 1906, said this very important thing pay all of our policyholders in full, irrespective of the terms of their policies. That's that's the way you stay in business and form a reputation. Exactly. Pay claims. And um, I, I'm intending to do a full episode
0: on Cuthbert Heath at some time because he's a, a fascinating character and, yeah, he deserves a full episode. Otherwise, yeah. we, we could wax lyrical now about him, but uh, probably best to leave it to a, to a full episode. Anyway, before we leave this area, um, we should say that uh, Nicholas Barbon's insurance office, uh, the fire office that we mentioned a bit earlier on, uh, was, was based somewhere around the back of the, the Royal Exchange, um, in a building that has, well, sadly has long since gone. Um, but other little snippets of information about this area, uh, Sun Insurance, um, founded in 1706, and which is the oldest continuously existing insurance company in the world, uh, now part of the RSA group, uh, was based just the other side of the Royal Exchange, And Equitable Life, the first modern life assurance company on which we did a podcast a few months ago, um, was established in 1762, uh, and that was located on nearby Nicholas Lane. So so Joe, um, as as we move to our next location, uh, tell us a little bit about your area, uh, title insurance. Because as I was researching for this podcast, I I looked up the history of title insurance uh, on the assumption that it was created by the Brits. Uh, and that we would be able to show you a building, the the building where it was created. Um, But uh, I discovered that it was an American invention, uh, and it was formed in Philadelphia. So, so what is it, and why is it such a big thing in America?
1: Yeah, Yeah, title insurance really goes back to a famous case in the United States called Watson versus Muirhead. And that was in Pennsylvania, and Watson had to sue Muirhead because Muirhead gave a deed. To Watson that said you own this land free and clear like deeds are supposed to say and the reason that Muirhead gave that deed was because he had a lawyer that gave him a title opinion that said the land was free and clear and that he could base his conveyance on that. Turned out that was not so. There was actually a lien a prior lien that was out there and so that's why Watson sued Muirhead but the court ruled that if you made your warranty in the deed based on a legal opinion, a professional legal opinion, there could be no liability. And so as a result, there needed to be some mechanism for people to actually collect on their claims.
2: That's really good. That's really interesting, by the way. I didn't know
1: any of that. Yeah, title insurance is a different product than really most any other form of insurance. Title insurance is a contract of indemnity. And so unlike almost really every other form of insurance that is trying to insure against risks or hazards that might happen in the future, a a contract of title insurance actually insures from the date the policy is issued into the past, the history. And so you're trying to insure against defects or loss that may occur in the chain of title. And so in property rights, what that means is We like to say sometimes, too, there's no such thing as perfect title. There's always some little something in the background. But with title insurance, if we have an actual claim uh, where maybe there was a, a missed error in the background, someone owned a piece of the property, or we did not realize there was a mortgage on the property, it wasn't properly recorded or something like that, and it causes you an actual loss, that's when we pay it. Now, sometimes the difference might be, well, there's an old mortgage that was from 50 years ago that there's no record in the courthouse that it ever got satisfied. It was never paid off. But you think, well, there's probably no chance that is going to ever be collected at this point because the statute of repose has passed. Uh, Anybody that would have owed that mortgage is dead, all kind of a number of things. And so we can make an underwriting decision a risk assessment to say, there's probably not very much risk there of loss, and we can decide to insure over that. So, uh,
0: so Joe, uh, it, uh, does, does that mean that every conveyance in America has to have title insurance? There is
1: no requirement to buy title insurance in the United States. The, the difference, though, is that every lender generally will require that their borrower purchase it for the lender, to give that lender further assurance that there's no problem with the title to the property, so the lender's title insurance is almost just happens as a matter of course. But then the owner of the property, they would choose to buy their own title insurance on their for for themselves as the beneficiary. But it's very common for both owners and lenders to buy title insurance. Um, the The good thing about title insurance is it's a premium that's only paid once and it's, very, it's a very low rate. If the, uh, the lawyer or title examiner did their job, all the risk has been determined at a certain point in time. We don't really insure against future risks in title insurance with just very limited exceptions. It's mostly all just what has happened in the record. Before now, because everything's filed in public records, deeds, mortgages, liens, easements, all kinds of encumbrances. I
0: mean, I mean that that is a useful explanation because it shows why it's so big in America. Whereas it's not in the UK. There is title insurance, but you only buy it when there is a a genuine belief that there's a problem in the title. So normally only when you know there's a problem in the title and you need insurance just in case it ever causes a bigger problem. and, and and that's
1: largely because we have registration.
0: So, right. so, that, so presumably, do you not have registration in America?
1: There's not uh, the, the prevalence of the registration system. We still do what it looks to the naked eye like the same thing. In other words, you take your documents into a public government type place, and you file it, and they stamp it, and you pay a small fee for that, and you think this is official. But the government is not Ensuring that recording. They're not saying, yes, we are backing you if something goes wrong. They're just saying, here are the public records. We leave it to private people to satisfy themselves that this is sufficient for your ownership. And that's where the expertise of title insurance companies comes into play because they know how to search those records and make sure that there won't be a loss in the future. Brilliant. Thank you very much. interesting. Now when people can wake back up, (laughs) and <laughs> listen to the rest right, of the podcast. <laughs> Let's move on to our next location.
0: We've now moved east uh, along Cornhill, um, across Gracechurch Street, and onto Leadenhall Street. Um, and in so doing, we actually have followed the journey that Lloyd's made uh, in 1928 when it moved from the Royal Exchange to 12 Leadenhall Street. And we're currently standing outside. Well, I mean, it, it is a magnificent stone archway. So, so, Paul, please tell us what we're looking
2: at. Yeah, sure. So this, this archway was the entrance to Lloyd's first purpose-built premises. So it was known as the Twenty-Eight Building, because clearly they moved here in 1928. It was designed by Sir Edwin Cooper, and he also designed Marlebone Town Hall, where both Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr were married. So King George V laid the foundation stone of the building, That was in 1925. It was then opened by the King with Queen Mary on 24th of March 1928. After moving here, business in Lloyds increased faster than anticipated, and that led to the Corporation of Lloyds by Royal Mail House in 1936, which you can see just next door here, and they joined the two buildings together.
0: And and is this archway all that remains of the 1928 building?
2: Yes, but it also serves as a, a memorial to all the 434 men of Lloyds who were killed in action during the two world wars. These large panels on either side of the doorway list them all. So some of the names on there, such as Poland, will be very recognizable to people in the market, as many of the families of these men continue to work at Lloyds after the war. And Joe, what's your... I
0: mean, we've only moved, was it, a couple of hundred meters, we haven't moved very far, but there's a completely different feel to this area, isn't there? So so what's your impression of it?
1: It truly is a lot more glass and steel, very modern. You know, these buildings, the gherkin, uh, salt shakers, and. You know, cheese graters and uh, just, all just this come up with any name. Walkies, walkies. One of the buildings is Bouncy Pool. <laughs> exactly. It's all it, it's, it's it blends perfectly, though. Yes. You know, the old and the new. Absolutely. You're not wrong, Joe. So
2: EC3 is known as the insurance district in the city. So practically every single building we look at is linked to insurance. You may have realised that many of the new buildings in London have given nicknames based on their appearance. Perhaps not some of the ones you just mentioned, but we've got the Leadenhall Building, which is just over here. Alternatively known as the Cheese Grater, which is where Aeon, MS Amlin are based. You can see the Gherking, that's where Swiss Re, And the Scalpel, how's this WR Barclay? Scalpel's my favourite actually if I'm is being it? honest. Now, whenever I look at it from
0: any angle, it, it, the proportions are right. It just, yeah. it just looks really, really it's a beautiful, very simple, classical, yeah. stylish, I think. Anyway, not, not that anyone cares about my architectural <laughs> views. Um, and, and if I can actually share a kind of a, you know, a small personal story here. Um, if we're, we're sort of at the corner of, well, we're headed towards the corner of Lime Street and, and Leadnall Street. And, and if we look northwards, um, then on the, you can see the cheese grater on the left and the gherkin is on the right. And between them, there's another tower, um, which is about 20 or so stories high um, and it has a, kind of a square footprint. So it's a, it's a, it's a sleek glass tower, um, kind of built in the 1960s. And uh, it's obviously influenced um, by Mies van der Rohe, the, sort of the great modernist architect. Um, It's currently occupied by by Viva, but back in 1992 uh, it was known as the Commercial Union Building. And and on 10th April 1992, so my recollection is it was the day after the the election of that year, um, it bore much of the force of a huge IRA bomb, like one tonne of explosives, um, that blew up outside the Baltic Exchange and in fact destroyed the Baltic Exchange. Um, And I was was just beginning my career then, I was working over at Tower Hill, so a few days later, I popped over at lunchtime uh, and, and, yeah, it was, yeah, at the time, it was before the cheese grater and the gherkin and, and it was the tallest building in the area. So it sort of, you know, it stood, it, it was a distinctive and dominating building. And, but yeah, every single window of the building had been blown out by the bomb yes. and the blinds were, were flapping in the wind. And it was, it was genuinely one of the most amazing things I've ever seen, just the destructive power. Of the bomb. Anyway, we've moved ahead chronologically. Um, let's go back to 1958 um, because in 1958, Lloyd's moved
2: again to Lime Street. So we stood here, Joe, by the side of the Leadenhall Building, and if you look directly in front, you can see the arch of the 28 building we were just at. In between that is the current Lloyd's building, and to the left is the Willis Building. Now, the Willis Building is the site of the old 58 building. So they went from 28, the arch, to 58, where Willis now stands. For a period of time, there was a bridge that connected the two buildings. That was known as the Bridge of Size. And then, as the 58 building started to outgrow its premises, some of the um, functions were moved to the, the effectively the lower basement, really, which was painted in a garish yellow. And that was known as the Yellow Submarine.
0: So, we are, uh, we are about 50 metres away from the Lloyds building now, it's slightly to the east of it. We're in a little courtyard and we're looking at this wall, which is, I don't know, what would you say? 30 feet high, kind of 10 metres or so. Um, And there there are four big stone friezes on the side of the wall. Um, And uh, yeah, well, talk us through them.
2: Well, this, this was originally on the fascia of the 58 building. So the current Willis building. And if you take a look at each one, there's reference made either to Lloyds itself or to what was insured at Lloyd's at the time. So we're talking 58, so it was the rise of the aviation industry. On the right there, you can see an aeroplane coming out the top. Obviously land and agriculture. There's reference to the lutein bell. Um, There's a phoenix for fire insurance. So phoenix from the flames. Um, What else have we got? Uh, There's a ship you can see on the top right one there. So really it it was an indicator of, of Lloyd's and what they insured. And it almost goes back a little bit to the previous story we told about the shop signage, Although it wasn't used for the same reason, that trend continued. A lot of businesses like to have these kind of fascias on them. That's
0: brilliant. I, I, I had, I didn't even know these were here. I, I don't think I've ever walked down this, this street.
2: No, it's, it's... Again, it's why why we need an insurance museum, Peter, because people just do not know about the history of the market and what's what can be found when you walk around. No,
0: that's brilliant. And, and, and the style is very... Well, you, you think of kind of carvings and you think of sort of medieval carvings and yeah. whatever. I suppose there is a hint of that, but it's sort of, I don't know, Art art nouveau i I'm not it sure. It is, yeah,
2: I mean. you're right. Particularly the figures, yeah.
0: Yeah, but so it's very yeah. bizarre to see a, a sculpture of a, a plane, kind of, a, you know, an airplane with, with four jets yep. in that style. Yep. And, uh, yeah. And yeah, oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. And a fantastic pig in the bottom right. I know, yeah. yeah. So uh, I have no idea what that is. <laughs> Agri- what, what, agricultural insurance. Agriculture,
2: yeah, livestock, something like that.
0: I mean, you mentioned a little bit earlier, Joe, when we were off, off, um, um, off, off air, as it were, about Lloyd's Bank. Yes. Um, and no, that's a different Lloyd. Um, so so that that Lloyd was a Quaker, and um, uh, it was at a time I have huge respect for the Quakers. I, I think they're great. If, if I had my time again, I'd probably have been a Quaker. Um, I was brought up as a Methodist, so not, not dissimilar from the Quakers. Um, but yeah, so, so the Quakers weren't allowed to get involved in the profession, so the very best of the, the, the Quakers went into commerce, um, and one of, one of them founded Lloyds Banking Corporation. Um, others were uh, um, Barclays Bank, is a, is a Quaker organisation. You have uh, Fry's chocolate, Roundtree's chocolate, um, Cadbury's chocolate, all of them, and Friends Provident, uh, that was founded by, by the Quakers. Um, and the Quakers actually were uh, an organisation that won uh, the um, Nobel Peace Prize just after the war because they're, they're pacifists. so They weren't allowed to participate in in, com- in combat in the war, but they they drove ambulances and the French ambulance corps, and they they helped kind of you know at every stage of the war. But they didn't actually fight, and because of that, they were awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Amazing. What we are now looking at is is the new building designed by Richard Rogers, kind of Lord Rogers, that was constructed in 1986. So, Joe, as a as a visitor to the city and the first time you've ever seen Lloyd's, kind of in, in the flesh, as it were, kind of what are your first impressions of it?
1: Well, it uh, it would not have been what I thought from the outside, as far as the very industrialized appearance of it. I'm sure they were going for a certain look when they designed the outside, but but like Prince Charles said, you know, it's, it's sort of like an oil rig. You know, you see all these pipes going up, a lot of steel, um, but that's, that's the look. That's what they're going for.
0: That, that, that is the look, and the, the, the theory behind it is, I understand it, Paul, you'll correct me if I'm wrong here, but the, uh, you know, a lot of the buildings, there's lots of the stuff on the internal, so pipe work and air conditioning, and you know, all of those in, the stuff which is normally hidden away inside the building, and of, uh, Richard Rogers decided he's gonna put that on the outside. So, so all, the, all the ducts and the pipework and whatever, stuff that normally would be inside, but he put them on the outside to kind of show the whole, kind of the way the building, it's the heart of the building, the structure of the building is on the outside and the heart of the building is on the
2: inside. That's exactly so, right. I think another reason as well is you're, you're spot on with that, but I think um, when it was being designed, the, the thought was there, what happens if we need to make repairs? And so the, the structure of the building was placed on the outside so that trading wouldn't be interrupted for the day if any work needed to be done. Let's go inside then. OK, well, we've come into
0: to Lloyd's now um, and you'll be able to tell it's a lot quieter. There's much less background noise. That's because we've come down one escalator um, and we're on, on the slightly lower level at Lloyd's and we've come into the old library. Um, so, so, Paul, t- talk us through the old library.
2: Yeah, sure. So the, the old library, I, I was told once that it's the only room in Lloyd's that doesn't perfectly descript what it does because it's, it's called the old library. But as you can see, there aren't any books in here whereas we've got the underwriting room or the boardroom and so on. So around us it's a, a wooden panelled room. This is the same appearance that it had and it's in fact a lot of these parts of this room were moved from the 1958 Lloyds building. Around the outside of us we can see a number of fine art portraits and, and each of these were previous chairman of Lloyds. So I think one of the ones that holds the most interest to me is, well there are two really. On the left here we've got Cuthbert Heath who's quite well known to a lot of people but Over on the sides here, this is uh, Sir Eustace Paulbrook. So Sir Eustace was the wartime chairman of Lloyds in the Second World War. He was great friends with Winston Churchill. In fact, there's a letter on one of the floors above us from Sir Winston um, after Sir Eustace made Winston Churchill an honorary member of Lloyds. He was a great man by all accounts, so he was involved in the um, kinder transport um, project. He gave his home up to Jewish children who came over during the war. And, in fact, the story goes that a young child was collected at the train station in a Rolls-Royce and brought back to the home and given to Mays to wait on them because the Eustace wanted them to experience some joy in their lives. So he's a great guy, by all accounts, and he also, during the war, mobilised a lot of Lloyd's staff. So in the premium processing offices and things like that, although women weren't allowed in the underwriting room at that point, they did work for Lloyd's, and he mobilised a lot of those women to go and work in the London Underground, so when there was an air raid, for example you'd have women from Lloyds going out to support those people that were hiding in the London Underground stations during the bombing attacks. It's a fantastic portrait as well, isn't it? Just beautiful, just yeah. Just sitting
0: square on, kind of beautiful. looking straight out of the portrait at you. Yeah, you're
2: not going to argue with him, are you, this portrait? No, not at all, the no. man in this portrait. No. But they often... Um, it's, I mean, it's a beautiful painting. I really like it. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Joe, shall we, uh, shall we go onto to the floor
1: of Lloyds now? I just want to say too how you know being here is such a special experience for me Um, it's like a pilgrimage you know for somebody who is fascinated by and derives their life income and work from the insurance business coming to Lloyd's is the mecca of insurance so this is really special and nice and I'm just so thankful to be with you two experts in the marketplace here
2: well one expert and me (laughs) I don't know about that i just having a look to see if there's anyone else who can tell you a little bit about I know some stories about these, but they aren't overly interesting, so... Well, I'm glad you just dismissed all these Chairman of Lloyds. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure they'd say more, more flattering things about me if my portrait was hanging. <laughs> right, let's head up.
0: So, we, we've come up a, a couple of escalators, now, and we are here on the floor of Lloyds. Um, and we're surrounded on all sides by all the various underwriting boxes Uh, and uh, there's a gallery above us with with more underwriting boxes and then a gallery above that with even more underwriting boxes and and, and then, you know, a few more above that and through all of these galleries from the floor of the Lloyds all the way up to the top there is a huge central atrium that reaches, oh, I don't know, 80 or so metres up Um, and at the top there's a an arched roof made completely of glass like some enormous greenhouse that sort of lets in the light all the way down to the floor. And kind of where, you know, on on the the right hand side, there's the famous kind of uh, escalators that go up through this space. Um, And it's an absolutely uh, amazing sight. And no matter how many times you've been here, it's just an awe-inspiring place. So, Paul, although this is um, an ultra modern
2: building, um, are there still elements that hark back to, to Lloyd's past? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So the, you, you're right, the building's modern, but it is, it is full of history, you know. So it was constructed on the site of the 28 building. Several of the original parts were preserved. So for example, um, there are some panels from the old library that were brought across when this building was built. But also many terms from the original coffee house remain too. So we can see all around us where the underwriters sit at their desks. These are called boxes. So, that term describes where the underwriters are sat. And in the original Lloyd's coffee house, um, the underwriters there would lease boxes or booths, as they, we would call them now, from Edward Lloyd's. And that would justify them sitting there all day doing business, basically. Um, you can also see the, the delivery staff in the room, or, or waiters, as they're known. Again, a term to come from the coffee house. The head waiter has responsibility for making entries into the loss book that we spoke about earlier. But perhaps the most noticeable aspect of the room is a lutein bell, which is right in front of us here. The story of the bell goes that on the 9th of October 1799, a ship named HMS Lutein was transporting a vast sum of gold and silver insured at Lloyd's and bound for Hamburg. But it hit; um, it was blown onto to Dutch sandbanks and wrecked. There were 240 crew; only one of them survived, and the entirety of the ship's cargo was lost. That was valued at that point around one million pounds. So to put that into context, it would be a loss of around £121 million today. It was a huge blow, obviously, for Lloyds financially, but it also went on to cement the market's reputation for settling even the most incredible losses. Many attempts were, after that point, made to recover the cargo with pretty much limited success. But in 1858, the bell was recovered. It was entangled in a ship's rudder and then eventually came to be hung in Lloyds' underwriting room at the Royal Exchange, where we were earlier, when Lloyds moved to Leadnall Street and then to Lime Street, the bell moved with it, and it had an important purpose. So when overdue ships came in safely, the bell was rung twice, to size of relief from the underwriters. If a ship was lost, the bell would ring once. That way, everyone knew the fate of the ship and the cargo that insured at the same time. With the advent of more recent times in the internet and email, the ringing of the bells no longer seemed necessary, but it's still rung on ceremonial occasions or in times of tragedy, such as the day of the terrorist attacks on the Twin Towers in New York, or more recently for Her Majesty the Queen's Jubilee.
0: So, Joe, you've you presumably seen photographs um, of this place, but how does it match up to reality? I have
1: seen uh, photographs of this room before, and you know perspective is always different when you're looking at a photo or a video. Mm or in person, but this one, I must say, really lives up to the majesty, uh, the splendor of the room, just the special moment, seeing the lutein bell here, knowing the significance of how uh, Lloyd's, uh, again, proved its worth by settling such a significant claim, not letting anything go, and, it, and that, that's what insurance is all about and symbolizes that. And then just to see the lost book, both the historic one and the current one, that is here that shows losses written in quill and ink. Very special. Lloyd's is, of course, kind
0: of rooted in the past. How can it not be when it has got such a, you know, an amazing history? But it, it's much more about the present and the future. Um, so Lloyd's is still the largest insurance marketplace in the world, uh, a specialist insurance and reinsurance market. Um, in 2021, 39.2 billion pounds, gross written premiums, Um, 76 or so syndicates um, and over 200
2: lines of business. Um, Paul, is there anything you want to add? I think even from the stories we've we've been discussing today, it's evident Lloyd's has always innovated, you know, whether it's from the introduction of Lloyd's List or candle auctions through to perhaps more recent events such as space salvage of rogue satellites or the introduction of the Lloyds Lab, the market's always been at the forefront of innovation. As somebody interested in history. This, this makes it even more fascinating to me as whatever challenges are thrown, Lloyds is able to adapt to them. And often the, the products created by underwriters, Mirror Society at the time. So, Paul,
0: is, is, is the floor used... I mean, obviously the floor is part of, of Lloyds. It is a place where people cross to get from one side of, the, of Lloyds to another. But is it used for any, any other occasions?
2: Yeah, so I think Lloyds has always had a history of remembering the war dead. And uh, on the 100th anniversary of the ending of the First World War, there were thousands of poppies that fell from right at the top and and fell down the atrium onto people standing below. It's probably, to be honest with you, Peter, it's probably one of the most moving things I've ever seen. It was beautiful, yeah. And you can see sometimes around, if you're walking around the building, sometimes you can still see some of those poppies that have nested on the ledge somewhere. They hold a, a service here every... Remembrance Day as well, and if ever you get the opportunity, i definitely recommend coming to it because they have representatives of each of the armed forces and the Lloyd's choir sing as well, and uh, again, it's just a brilliant thing to be at. And,
0: and going back to the Lutine Bell for a moment, it, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not rung
2: very often nowadays, but is, is it, when was the last time it was rung? So for the Jubilee, celebrations. Oh, of course, yeah. Prior to that, uh, when the architect of the building, Richard Rogers, died. Um, when Bob D, the head waiter, sadly passed away recently, the bell was rung for in, in his honor and as an act of remembrance. It, it generally tends to be rung if there's a, a major event, so after the 9-11 or the London terror attacks, for example, or if a person of significance has passed away. I'm surprised they didn't ring it when you walked in, Joe. <laughs> I was you?
1: totally expecting that. <laughs> that was that was the expectation, uh, yeah. you know. Here he comes, ring the luteen bell.
2: <laughs> I've, I've actually got a short video if you want to see it. Of um,
1: isn't, that, isn't that the rule? Any American that comes in gets to ring the luteen bell.
2: Exactly. I've got um, my great uncle was an underwriter, and uh, there's a story that there was an American guy that came to Lloyd's, I think uh, in the fifties. Now bearing in mind, it was particularly tight on dress codes around that time. And the American guy walked in, didn't realize, and was wearing a white suit. So everywhere he went, people were turning around looking at him, because he was wearing a white suit in the room. And apparently the guy got to one end and someone said, you're a Yank, couldn't you?" <laughs> <laughs> Without even knowing him. What gave me away? <laughs> okay look, so this was, um, there's the Lloyd's Choir singing at Remembrance Service. Oh. So beautiful, honestly. Mm. You see how busy it gets. I'll send that to you if you want to see it, but it's, it's a real big event here.
0: Right, so uh, our final stop is uh, just around the corner from Lloyd's uh, in Leadenhall Market, at the, the famous, or some would say infamous, uh, lamb pub uh, established in 1780 uh, and located in uh, Leadenhall Market. Um, And Ednaul Market uh, has been around for ages. I'm sure Paul will tell us how long it's been around for. But the current building dates back to uh, the Victorian era. And it's a classic Victorian covered market uh, that forms the the shape of an X, basically. Um, And it's, how do I describe it? It's it's, it's two two stories. Uh, Everything is sort uh, sort of beautifully painted. It's got the city of London emblems along the top and then there's an arched roof roof over the whole thing, which is presumably, I don't know, it's actually wooden. I assumed it was cast iron, but it's it's a wooden roof. So it's this beautiful arched uh, marketplace. And uh, it's a place where many underwriters and brokers have ended their day and and (laughs) historically maybe started their day here, Um, but uh, certainly not, not anymore. Um, but it's, it's a bustling place with specialist shops and re- restaurants, and it's a truly, truly wonderful place that has appeared in various films over the years, most famously all that, the Harry Potter uh, films. Um, and this is where our walking tour ends. So, so Joe, what, what are your, how do you sum up kind of the last however many hours we've been wandering around the
1: city? <laughs> I sum it up as a real both per- professional and personal thrill to have the opportunity to see all these uh, significant places in the insurance industry and experience it firsthand. You know, you see it, you read about it, you learn about it, um, but to actually experience it in real life, it's been really special today. And I'm just grateful to you all for spending time with me and uh, having this insurance tour podcast
0: absolutely well joe it's been an absolute pleasure and and, you know i'm I'm so grateful to you really for supporting the podcast for from its earliest days so yes thank you so much and paul have you got any
2: sort of final comments no I'd, i'd mirror what joe said thanks very much for inviting me today i think it's been really good fun i think if i was to give advice to anybody i would say just keep your eyes open and look up when you're walking around the city because there's so much to see and even if you look at something, it looks unusual. Go and look up what it is, because invariably there's a really interesting story behind it.
0: Yeah, thank you. And uh, the, the thing which I find amazing is we've just... You know, I don't know how long this podcast is going to last, but over the last however many minutes, we've sort of done a tour of 500 years of insurance history. That's right. But yet we, have, we haven't really walked very far. We, we've, right. we've walked less than a kilometre, probably, in, in total. <laughs> And it's just staggering how that much history, insurance history is, is contained in such a small area. Oh, yeah. Very much so. Um, and you know, the, the modern insurance industry is, uh, you know, it's, London is still the heart of it effectively, and, and Lloyd's is the heart of the heart. And uh, yeah, I, 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 find, I find it staggering. I find it staggering. So hopefully people have been inspired by this and will we'll retrace the steps that we've taken today it'll only take half a half lunch time so hopefully people will do that but Joe and Paul thank you so much for your time that has been absolutely wonderful
2: RPC Radio. Radio
0: thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered which is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell if you enjoyed this podcast you will also love our other podcasts Taxing Matters and Money Covered plus The Fix which is co-hosted by my colleague, Kelly Thompson. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you, and I hope you have a great day.